This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. I like a bed that's really firm. I need something a little softer than that. Rest easy. With the Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed, you can both adjust your comfort with your Sleep Number setting. Can it really help me fall asleep faster? Yes, by gently warming your feet. Okay, but can it help keep us asleep? It senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you effortlessly comfortable. Sleep Number, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. It's our biggest sale of the year where all beds are on sale. Save 50% on the Sleep Number 360 Limited Edition Smart Bed. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Way I See It. I'm Alistair Sook, your guide in this 30-part series in which we're opening the collection at MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, to some of the sharpest creative minds of our time. And here at the moment, I'm, well, I'm, I'm backstage. Our guests' choices have ranged from massive sculptures to minimal paintings, idealised architecture to industrial design, and today's choice, which is accessed through this door is different once again. To me, art is really as important as any relationship that I have or will have. It gasses you up, you know, that's a kind of a, a kid's term now, but I need to be gassed up sometimes, and art really helps me in everything. Margaret Cho is a Korean-American fireball of a stand-up comedian, succeeding in a cutthroat world and doing so with the sort of energy that demands refueling. Here she is in her live show, I'm the one that I want. A Korean reporter once asked me, he said, do your parents, do your Korean parents feel ashamed that their daughter, their Korean daughter is on stage talking about the things you talk about? And I said, I don't think they're ashamed because they're Korean. I think any parents would be ashamed. Right, here we go. Let's give it a knock. Projection booth two. Thank you. This is the right place. So this is not a public space. No. The theatre is just out front here. Yeah. That is the public space. And then the well, I can see there's a film playing on the yeah. screen. I chose the film Lady Vengeance. It's the third of director Chanuk Park's Vengeance trilogy. And film is such a huge part of what I experience and what I need from the world. My visit to the not-so-romantically-named Projection Booth 2 proved to be a date for one as Margaret's hectic schedule meant she had to speak to us from California, where, as it happens, she grew up in San Francisco. Now, Margaret may be the only one of our guests who's chosen a movie, but that doesn't mean that film isn't an important part of MoMA's story. As early as 1935, the museum had already established a film library, and over the eight and a half decades since then, the department has collected more than 30,000 films. These include things you might expect, some of the earliest motion pictures ever created, a lot of foreign art house fare, and, naturally, a 35mm print of Battleship Potemkin, Sergei Eisenstein's silent classic from 1925. But among the titles in MoMA's collection, there are more recent, i.e. dating from the second half of the 20th century on, critical hits and box office smashes too. Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull, the Coen Brothers' Fargo, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, and two out of the three films in South Korean director Park Chan-wook's thematically linked Vengeance trilogy. I must confess, I'm new to Korean cinema, 
though you may have encountered Park's work without realising, as I did. In 2018, he directed a six-part BBC adaptation of John le Carré's novel The Little Drummer Girl. Released in 2005, Lady Vengeance is a visceral, gory, yet supremely stylized psychological thriller from a dazzling director sometimes billed as the Tarantino of the East. Apparently, the admiration's mutual. It all hinges on an elaborate revenge narrative, which I'll try not to give away. Suffice to say that if, in some alternative dimension, the playwrights behind that blood-curdling historical genre of Jacobean drama known as revenge tragedy could watch it, I suspect even they would wince. You see, Lady Vengeance's gruesome plot involves multiple child kidnappings, snuff videos and brutal murder. So let's be clear, it's, it's not an easy watch. But all the gore is offset by oodles of dark humour and irony. Plus, the photography and surprising Italian Baroque soundtrack are nothing short of mesmeric. What is in Lady Vengeance that appeals to me? I think it has a lot to do with the way that Korean society is structured. It's a very patriarchal society. It's a very sexist culture. However, there's ways to get around that. And I think that Lady Vengeance really does that. Igum Ja, who's the lead character, she is betrayed and therefore becomes this incredible avenger of herself, of her child. And the imagery is just unbeatable. If you love Chanuk Park as a director, this is where he really hits his stride. When Margaret talks about the vengefulness of the film's heroine, who incidentally, with her striking blood-red eyeshadow, must be one of the most vividly drawn characters in cinematic history, she doesn't mean that Lee Gumja is after a form of simple, straightforward, dish-best-served-cold revenge. No, she's compelled to act by these grief-stricken feelings that seem somehow much more sorrowful, painful, profound. You can sense the depth of her emotions, as played by actress Lee Young ai on screen, though there isn't really a word in English capacious enough to encapsulate them. Turns out, though, that in Korean there is, and that word is Han. So, Margaret, how would you describe someone afflicted with Han? Somebody who feels like they've been wronged by the world and they're going to get revenge and you're going to spend your whole existence on that and your existence is poised to right those wrongs. And in Korea, Han becomes an identity. It comes out of having been occupied by both China and Japan and been forced to deal with the marginalization of being occupied, that colonization by people who really look like you. It's a very strange thing. Having to really, really go after your own independence in a way that's really wrenching and deep and takes generations, that Han really comes out of that. It's something that is hard to explain to people who are not Korean, but if you are Korean, you feel it and you do it and you live it and sometimes you reject it. You have a Han against Han. I have myself have some Han against Han, but it comes from oppression. It comes from a place of being marginalized and, and a need to rectify that. We are innocent, but... But I made you grow up without a mother. 
For me, as a comedian, you know, I started very young, and I started in a time in America where there were no Asian American comedians out there. It took a lot of guts, and it took a lot of Han, this need to rectify that wrong. I am not going to die because I failed as someone else. I'm going to succeed as myself, and I'm going to stay here and rock the mic until the next Korean-American fag hag, shit starter, girl comic, trash talker comes up and takes my place! I think film, and this film in particular, is art on many levels. Not only do you compose a frame like a painter, you also have to tell a story through these frames. And here is sort of where we see the Korean new wave and film and K-drama and music, what they call the Hallyu, which is the Korean kind of pop culture revolution. It really starts to take hold of the rest of the world. So there's a big victory here. What Margaret calls the Hallyu, others call the Korean wave the ever-increasing international popularity of contemporary culture from South Korea. And for years now, filmmaker Park Chan-wook has been riding its crest. But Margaret's also conscious of a time before this big victory of Korean culture, when Korean immigrants to America found solace and satisfaction not in Korean cinema, but in the kung-fu movies of the Hong Kong-American actor and martial arts hero, Bruce Lee. When my family emigrated to the United States, one of their biggest pleasures was getting together over a cassette of Return of the Dragon so they could see Bruce Lee triumphing over and over again just because they had so many difficulties of being these recent immigrants to America and having to deal with racism, having to deal with the language barrier, having to deal with American ideas about who Koreans were, and so I think they got a lot of strength from watching Bruce Lee triumph. Back in the projection room of MoMA's basement cinema, there's a very particular retro soundscape, and even smell, that isn't part of our instant, connected digital world at all. After she'd finished changing a reel, I asked projectionist Evelyn Emile if she had a soft spot for working with films shot on 35mm. It depends on the film, but yes, uh, I love to handle it. I love to see it run. I love to hear it. Then I can touch it. And if, if something goes wrong, I can fix it. And I, I can see it all. I can make the slight movements and change what's on screen. Like with digital, it's all set. I don't have any creative relationship with the medium. Decisions about which films, like Lady Vengeance, enter MoMA's collection are made by a team of specialist curators. My name is La Francis Hui. I am an associate curator in the Department of Film at MoMA. This film entered our collection 2014, and we got a batch of donations from CG Entertainment. It's a big producer and distributor of Korean films in Korea. So we were very lucky to be given a number of Korean films in 35mm prints, and we will be showing those films from time to time to the audience here. I love that you have it in a 35mm print. You know, those are so rare, and it really does make a difference. By choosing a film, Margaret chose raising an interesting question, because unlike the many historical masterpieces in the galleries upstairs, which were painted or sculpted, say, by a single hand, film, as a medium, is clearly collaborative. So who's due the creative credit? The lead actress? the director of photography, the director himself, or all of the above. 
In the case of Lady Vengeance, neither Margaret nor La Francis Huey is in any doubt. Director Park Chan-wook is a, a genuine immaculate auteur, creating and shaping his material as any great artist would. When you look at Park Chan-wook's works, it's very exhilarating and very engrossing to watch because of his sumptuous visual design. It's always dazzling and hyper-stylized, and he takes a lot of time to frame and compose each shot. And there's something very operatic about his films. It's not only because of a very rich soundtrack, but also because of the visual excess, the opulence. Naturalism is really not his thing. It is really wonderful to look at. In Lady Vengeance, that operatic quality is underscored literally by the music of early European opera, Vivaldi for the most part. There's a lot of Catholic imagery too, involving guilt and prayer, sin and redemption, a legacy perhaps of Park's upbringing in a devout Catholic family in Korea. But the film's overall effect, as the heroine switches from butter-wouldn't-melt angel to merciless kick-ass, red eyeshadow and high heels wearing Avenger, is hardly European. In fact, with its blood-spattered, ritualistic set-piece denouement, the film is impossible to classify. Even Park, who self-taught and started out reviewing films, speaks of the strange forms of his movies, which he calls a mishmash of everything. What I can say for sure is that Margaret Cho hasn't chosen Lady Vengeance because she likes it. It's much more than that. I really am obsessed with this film and the visuals of it. You know, I wear the red eyeshadow. I have a black weird jacket with a giant cone around the neck like she does. You know, I, I have this want and desire to kind of recreate some of the imagery there just because I, I love the way it looks and I love the way it is. The film gives me something to definitely aspire to, the greatness of it and the greatness of the lasting impression that it has on me. It's something that I watch when I need a little pick-me-up. You know, I think that sometimes film can really do that. It can really kind of reset your state of mind and, and get you ready to kind of tackle the world again. I love that when you can find that kind of solace in a piece of art that this is. Thank you for listening. Discover more incredible works of modern art by searching for The Way I See It on BBC Sounds. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favourite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. From the Manhattan to the Martini to the Negroni, cocktails and spirits have never been more popular than they are today. I'm Noah Rothbaum, The Daily Beast's half-full editor. And I'm David Wandrich, The Daily Beast's senior drinks columnist. And we're the hosts of the podcast Life Behind Bars, which won the 2018 Tales of the Cocktail Spirited Award for the world's best drinks podcast. Yes, we do get paid to drink for a living. So shake up a drink and join us for a mix of engaging stories and historical facts about the greatest bartenders and the greatest drinks of all time. Cheers. Cheers. Acast is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.